Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 365 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16. Moonwalk 2 and 3, The Big Sneak. Last time we left John Young and Charlie Duke at Station 6 at the base of Stone Mountain. They were running out of time, and Houston was trying to hurry them along. This is Apollo Control. We have moved the uh, clock ahead that's keeping track of the amount of time remaining on the portable life support systems. Uh, moved it ahead 20 minutes, uh, which if we can continue on would give us a 20-minute uh, uh, stretch on this uh, EVA. Add 20 minutes to it, giving us a total of 7 hours, 20 minutes. Uh, Young and Duke will now uh, bypass Station 7 and uh, continue on to Station 8. Now the astronauts headed west toward South Ray Crater to gather some ray ejecta material. As you heard, they were running behind and it was decided to skip Station 7. This was acceptable because Station 7 was close enough to Station 8 that they didn't have to sample at both places. Station 8 was located right on a prominent ray. It was actually designated wreck crater but it was located near two craters both of them 15 to 20 meters in diameter within the ray streak the moonwalkers found whitish material just as they had at flag crater during their first eva they also got some boulder samples as well as another double length core sample the geologist had some unusual requests First, they wanted soil samples that were underneath rocks, then soil that was between rocks in an east-west orientation, and then permanently shadowed rock that had never seen the sun. After three quarters of the way through this stop, they realized they needed to unload their large bags that they carried on each side of their backpacks. They had collected so many rocks, the bags were now full. Trying to get them unlocked and stored on the floor of the rover and getting new ones out was terribly frustrating and took a lot of time. But then they had a more destructive problem. While working behind the lunar rover, 
as John walked away from the rear, his suit, or hammer, got caught in the rear fender and ripped off the whole thing. <laughs> it did. We lost the fender, Tony. Uh, the uh, pusher-downer fender on the uh, right rear wheel is gone. Right, just like the trainer. Losing a fender in training had happened so many times, they were not really concerned about it. Little did they realize it was going to create a much more irritating problem. When they drove away, they quickly discovered that without the fender, the lunar dust was thrown up and then literally rained down all over them. They thought they were dusty before, but now with the lunar dust shower, they really got filthy. Additionally, the extra dust contributed to a noticeable and somewhat worrisome heating of the rover batteries. Station 9 was northwest just a bit from Wreck Crater and just south of another good-sized crater. Here, it was decided that John would collect a lunar dust sample that was undisturbed and uncontaminated. This meant that John could not kick any dust on the sample as he approached it with his special sampling tool. They nicknamed this operation the Big Sneak. They figured the only way to do this was to approach from behind a big rock and then reach over and collect it. In training, John had practiced for hours sneaking up on this simulated sample. So now on the moon, he was sneaking up on this rock that was about three feet high. Sneaking on the moon wasn't easy in one-sixth gravity. To the common observer, it must have looked somewhat amusing. It certainly did to Charlie. John bounced as much as he sneaked. He got there before the rock even knew he was coming. He resembled a cat stalking a canary. Unfortunately, Mission Control missed the whole thing. They had the TV camera pointed the other way. To pan left, we'll show you the rock we're going to sneak up on. Don't scare it. It's the wrong way. Hey, uh, don't open. What? Don't open that. It is between us and the lamp. It's between the lamp and us. Oh, I know that, but they don't want you to open that thing until you get right up next to the rock. Is that what he said? Well, that's not just now, no. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm going to get the other one. Okay, for you. Uh, we agree with Charlie that we'd like you to get up a little closer to it and face away from yourself before you open it. Away from myself, huh? Okay. Right, you're filthy, as uh, Fredo says. Donnie, you're sneaking? Yeah. Ah! Gee, we're missing the great rock hunt here. Dude, you're just not watching him sneak, Tony. Well, I'd sure like to. Hey, gotcha. 
The astronauts also had been looking for a rock they could push or turn over in order to sample the soil underneath it. The sample would give scientists information on the variability of the solar radiation. Mission Control wanted a rock as big as they thought they could move. At first, the astronauts found a big six-footer and decided to tackle it. But they huffed and they puffed and they couldn't budge it. Finally, John found a four-footer that he was able to topple over. As they prepared to move on to Station 10, they realized the rover's navigation system had stopped working. At first, John thought he might have bumped a switch, but they all looked normal. The astronauts calculated that they were located south-southwest of the lunar module, which was hidden by an intervening ridge. So, John took a north-northeast heading toward Smoky Mountain which they could see in the background, and started driving. They had now been out six hours, and driving back, dust was once again flying everywhere. We got to get over this ridge, John, and we'll see the go limb. Man, you have covered, I am covered from head to foot. With dust. Boy, those fenders really are uh, useful, Tony. This one we lost in the back has uh, resulted in us being uh, uh, double pink pen. You're going to have to really brush. Got it. You mean you guys are getting dirty? Maybe that's how we get our extension. Ah. Uh, been dirty. I think we could probably come out a little east of... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, Charlie. But if we do, we ought to cross the tracks if we get too far east. That's exactly why I'm going this way, old buddy. Okay? Hang in there. You are sharp. Yes. There's the lamp, John. How about that sports lamp? Right on, babe. Right on. They joked and bounced their way back up and down hills and craters. Right, except where that limb is. Except right there where that limb is. It is really good. I'd say that's a lot of time. 
About 1,500 meters out, they saw Orion and confidently proceeded to Station 10, the ALSEP site near the lunar module. At Station 10, they conducted a number of soil mechanics tests using the self-recording penetrometer. This device, which was part of the rover's tool rack, tested soil penetration resistance as a function of depth below the lunar surface. They made five cone penetrations. Finding that penetration was easy for the first 10 to 20 centimeters, but increasingly difficult below that depth. The deepest penetration achieved on a hand-driven core tube by any Apollo mission was 70 centimeters, which required about 50 blows with a hammer. For sampling at greater depths, Charlie and John used the battery-powered drill improved from Apollo 15. This allowed sampling to depths of 1.5 to 3 meters, which they managed to get down much more easily than Apollo 15. Finally, it was time to head back toward the limb. When they got back, they were still running a little behind schedule, so Houston asked them to eliminate some of their chores. The astronauts pleaded for more time, which sounded a little like two whiny children. Why don't you just give us an extension? Tony, how about an extension, you guys? We're feeling good. Well, we understand, and uh, we can understand why you wouldn't want to get back in, but we'd like you to get back in uh, on time, and uh, you've got a lot of science there, so uh, uh, don't worry about it. Is that all we're going to do tonight? We'll sit around and talk. Oh, we'd like to hear you talk. Tony, we could really, uh, yeah, especially on hot place. <laughs> that just makes it more interesting. Ten minutes, we get all this done, Tony. How about ten minutes, Tony, please? In the midst of the begging, John noticed something on the rover. Look at that, Charlie. What? I don't see what, what, what. But somebody up there likes this. That bag number four. See oh. where it is? Came off, huh? Came off and it's hanging between the fender and the frame. That is amazing. Yeah. And the bag was still filled with rocks. Finally, Houston relented on the extension. Come on, Tony, pretty please. Oil work in it. Okay, we'll go ahead and give you ten minutes. Well, is, uh, How's that? Just shows we love you. Boy. Let's hear it for all let's hear it for all flight. And had a boy for flight. Yay. At last it was time to go inside the limb. John and Charlie couldn't believe how dirty they were. They had a little dust brush about the size of a paintbrush six inches across, but it seemed worthless with all that dirt. John started kicking the landing strut in an attempt to get the dust off, while Charlie found that when he banged his hands and feet against the landing gear, like beating a dirty carpet, it jarred a lot of the dust off, and he was able to get reasonably clean. Okay, uh, you're getting pretty far behind there. We're going to have to ask you to go on in. 
I'm going up right now. Well, it's going in right now. To John, ingress to the limb was the hardest part of all human extravehicular activity on the moon. He likened it to returning from a sortie and landing back on the deck of an aircraft carrier. To fit in, they had to bend their backs in and up over the ascent engine cover and then stand up. This always made for the highest heart rates of every mission. Okay, you guys had a 7-hour, 23-minute EVA. Despite their protest, the astronauts were very interested in getting into the lunar module safely, especially on this EVA when they were just about to run out of oxygen. There was no way they could plug into oxygen or water if the EVA mobility unit failed. In fact, John wanted the next crew's suits to be modified so the wearer could access oxygen, lithium hydroxide to remove the CO2, water to service the cooling unit, batteries, and have an extra spare communication system. Once inside the lunar module, the major problem was dust. They had to put a jettison bag over both their pressure suits and lay them on the engine cover with the neck and helmet of the suits on top of the oxygen purge system and on the back of their portable life support systems. They cleaned the dust off the floor as best as they could with a wet rag. Velcro on the floor also got very dusty. The lower limbs of the liquid-cooled garment were dusty. Dust was in the wrist ring pull connectors which would make it very tough to put them on their gloves tomorrow. And it was the same for their helmet rings. But right now, the astronauts were exhausted. Their arms were achy, especially their forearms, and tips of their fingers were still tender and bluish looking. John and Charlie looked forward to a good rest because the next day would be very long. The last EVA was scheduled to last 5 hours and 40 minutes, and immediately following, they would load up and lift off from the moon for rendezvous with Ken Mattingly. Liftoff was going to be a critical maneuver, but they were not worried about it as they prepared for their rest period. They went right to sleep and slept like babies for 7 hours. John and Charlie hustled through their morning meal and suited up. By now, the third time, it was a piece of cake. They knew exactly which way to bend and move to help each other. 
Due to the fact that the landing was delayed, the time for the third EVA was reduced to 5 hours and 40 minutes. With the lunar module's batteries having been fully powered up for 6 hours before landing, they just could not stay any longer on the moon without risking running out of power. The final EVA was scheduled to start at 10.25 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on April 23rd and end at 4.05 p.m. To save time, several planned stops on the traverse were omitted, with work concentrated at only three field stations. The traverse would cover 11.4 kilometers. From the geologist's point of view, Stone Mountain was not the prime sampling for the Descartes Formation. That would be on the lower slope of Smoky Mountain, toward the rim of the North Ray Crater, the target for Moonwalk 3. This was going to be an exciting EVA. John and Charlie were going to be the furthest away from the lunar module, and we're going to view the largest crater any one of the Apollo crews had ever seen. North Ray was about four to five miles north of the lunar module and measured about 500 yards in diameter and 200 feet deep. Additionally, Capcom told them that they had enough capacity for another 100 pounds of rocks. They had collected 123 pounds thus far. Naturally, John and Charlie were elated and were really anxious to get going and see this enormous crater and gather samples. From the photographs, it appeared there were some large boulders on the rim. They were to collect some of this ejecta, hoping to get the deepest lunar material possible. By the end of their prep time, John and Charlie were 30 minutes ahead of schedule and got permission to begin depressurization. While they watched the cabin pressure come down, John commented that it was going to be hot out there today. The shadows had shortened considerably. On the moon, the sun moves at a rate of about 1 degree every 2 hours. The sun angle had moved from about 15 degrees to almost 55 degrees, and the surface temperature had risen from 85 degrees Fahrenheit when they landed to over 200 degrees on this last day. But the higher temperature was only a minor irritant. Their pressure suits should keep them relatively cool. Leaving on schedule, John and Charlie began their drive to Northray and had a comparatively easy time. The small boulders and stones that were on the surface when they went south were absent from their north traverse. About 100 meters north of the limb, they did have to climb a 10 meter high ridge, which was probably an old subdued crater. Charlie believed that when North Ray Crater was formed, so much lunar soil was ejected that it just covered up these smaller craters and stones. What they saw were more subdued, shallow-bottomed craters. As they topped the rim of nearby Palmetto Crater, John spotted Dot, 
a small crater Charlie had named after Dottie. Hey, Charlie, there's Dot. Yeah, I see Dot. Great. Hanging right in there. Right on the rim. Charlie wondered how Dottie and the boys were hanging in there. What with all the news media camped on the doorstep, plus a house full of relatives, Charlie knew Dottie would be glad when this was all over. The closer John and Charlie got to the North Ray Crater, the more excited they became. They began to see more and more rocks, and they were larger than any Apollo mission had seen before. As they passed these boulders, they noticed the boulders seemed to have more fractures in them, probably because of the tremendous force of the meteorite explosion. We're definitely on the ejecta blanket here. And all within a hundred meters or so, I think, of the rim. It turned out Charlie was wrong. It was more like 500 meters. John and Charlie were still overjoyed. They were seeing white rocks, black rocks, and unusual-looking rocks. That is that, that big. I can't believe the size of that big black rock over here. And I don't think that's a pressure, John. Because though it might be, I see some large white class. That was Charlie commenting on a 10-foot-tall boulder they just passed. Off to the right, facing the crater and downslope, were some large, angular black rocks one so enormous it stood out from the rest. To the left, the rocks were white and fairly smooth, appearing to have been there a while. Some were as high as six or seven feet. Oh, spectacular. Just spectacular. Okay, Tony, we're on the rim. Beautiful. There we go. If we spin... If we go 360 and park right here, it'd be flat. Great, John. Super. Can't wait to get off. Gotta get off. We can't wait for you to either. Okay, about Tony, we're at uh, the timeline. Capcom informed them they were 13 minutes ahead of schedule. They parked at Station 11 about 100 yards from the actual rim of North Ray Crater. There, they had their first opportunity to investigate a young Highland Crater at close quarters. North Ray was a large dimpled crater about 900 meters across and a couple hundred meters deep into the lower slopes of Smoky Mountain. It was immediately apparent to Charlie and John that there were two distinct strata exposed in the wall of the crater. Uppermost, they saw a layer composed of friable breccia with light matrices. Deeper down, they saw dark matrix breccias of which house rock was a giant specimen. This was important information for the geologist as the light matrix breccias seemed to be typical of the Descartes formation, whereas the Cayley consisted of breccias with dark matrices. From a chemical point of view, there wasn't much difference between the two rock types. What the geologist had been hoping for was samples from a single huge boulder big enough 
to show multiple igneous or volcanic units. Unfortunately, there was still no sign of volcanism at North Ray. The rim terrain was pretty hard and stable, and their boots didn't sink in. They began sampling in the area of Station 11 on the rim. Then, everybody began talking at once. Houston was telling them in real time what to do since their planned checklist had been changed, and with John and Charlie running around taking pictures and describing rocks, it was pandemonium for a while. First, they jogged over to sample the white rocks, which were about 50 yards from the rover. These white rocks were unusual, friable breccia that with black clasped in them and a bluish tint. The rocks reminded John and Charlie of some shocked rocks they had seen on geology trips during training. They had learned that the force of a meteor impact chemically changes rocks, giving them a milky appearance. John and Charlie tried to operate independently to maximize their stay, but they began to have a terrible time with the sample bags. The bags were supposed to clip onto the camera mount, allowing the crew to pull off one at a time, much like pulling sandwich bags out of their box. Well, the brackets would not hold, and the bags kept falling off. With the bags dropping and having to pick them up and at the same time carrying shovels, tongs, and hammer, it was almost impossible to work alone. Therefore, they decided to work together to get the most out of the hour they would spend. After sampling around the white rocks, they came back to the lunar rover, dropped off some bags, and headed for a big black rock they had been eyeing all morning. Look at the size of that biggie. <laughs> it is a biggie, isn't it? It may be further away than we think. Because no, it's not very far. We're just right beyond you. Little did Charlie realize that he had made a gross error in judgment. For as they jogged and jogged and jogged, the rock just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They would turn and look back at the rover, which was getting smaller and smaller. There was nothing to compare sizes to on the moon. No telephone poles or trees. So they really had no idea how large or how far away that rock was. John and Charlie kept jogging and jogging, and the rock got bigger and bigger. In the back room, where the geologists were watching the TV monitor. Everyone was on the edge of their seats. This rock was so big, it had actually shown up on lunar orbital photos taken by Apollo 14. Keep going, keep going, Muehlberger yelled at the screen. The two figures got smaller and smaller and began to disappear behind a ridge. Jack Smith sang out in the back room, quote, As our crew sinks slowly in the west, end quote, and everyone erupted in laughter. The scientists watched in amazement as John and Charlie jogged on and on and began to realize how really big this rock was. Now a tiny figure on the screen, 
Charlie exclaimed in astonishment. Look at the size of that rock! We can see. The closer I get to it, the bigger it is. Muleberger was flabbergasted. They're not even there yet, he said. Once they approached the rock, they realized how really enormous it was. Well, Tony, that's your house rock right there. Very good. Don't get too near the edge of that thing. It falls off. Look, look over, look over at your right. It falls off pretty good. Yeah, I know. I'm gonna just take a little stereo here. It truly was as big as a house. In fact, bigger than a house. It was approximately 90 feet long and 45 feet high, and it just towered over them. They guessed that it had come right out of the bottom of North Ray Crater, since it was so huge and was sitting right on the crater rim. In fact, the rock was so close to the rim, they had to watch their step as they collected a few samples. But, all they had with them was a hammer. It was like trying to dismantle the Empire State Building with a crowbar. But Charlie began whacking away at the monstrous rock and finally knocked off a couple of chunks about the size of a grapefruit. The rock was a giant breccia. Veinlets of glass ran through it, plus it contained white matrix rocks with black glass and black matrix rocks with white glass. Also, there were places on the rock that looked like little bullet holes. These were probably the result of micrometeorites that had whizzed in from outer space and impacted into this big boulder. It had taken the moonwalkers so long to get to the house rock that they didn't have much time at all before they had to start the hike back. They jogged back uphill to the rover, loaded up, and headed for the next station, which was to be in a large boulder field about a kilometer from North Ray. And it was on the way back to the landing site. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to the momentous episode 365 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 16, Moonwalk 2 and 3, The Big Sneak. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released on June 10th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email on the form. 
If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 189 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Afterthoughts for this episode. First of all, why is episode 365 momentous? Some of you probably already know. Most of the time, there are 365 days in a year. Now, there are 365 episodes of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Of course, that means you could begin at episode 1 and listen to one episode a day, and it would take a whole year to make it to the end. And by that time, there would be more episodes available. So, feel free to do a complete re-listen if you want to. It'll only take a year. (laughs) I wanted to mention why the communications in the lunar module sometimes was much worse than when the astronauts were doing an EVA. Because of the six-hour delay in landing, they were trying to keep power used to a minimum. Now, to do this, they switched to low bit rate and down voice backup, which made the lunar module communication sound weak. It saved power, but the communication sounded weak. They switched back to high rate and normal voice when better calm was required. So in case you were wondering about that. Now I also want to mention my own communication. If you're listening on headphones, or maybe you can hear it not listening on headphones, you might be uh, experiencing a rumbling sound in the background. Unfortunately, it is not a Saturn V launch. It is my air conditioner. The camper gets quite hot on a sunny day. It kind of performs like a solar oven. It's about 87 degrees in here with the air on. With it off, you could probably roast a turkey on the kitchen counter. So, unfortunately, I have to run the air conditioner and it's not quiet. I apologize for that. This episode had some amusing parts. I particularly like the operation codenamed The Big Sneak. I wish they had the camera on John when he was doing it so everyone could see it. The goal was to get an undisturbed rock that didn't have dust kicked on it. To do that, it had to be on the other side of a larger rock that hadn't been disturbed. So, John had to sneak up on it in one-sixth gravity on the moon in a big moon suit. I wonder which geologist thought this one up. John must have felt and looked ridiculous trying to sneak up on a rock. (laughs) But, Only Charlie knows for sure. (laughs) I also enjoyed the instruction Capcom gave. John, face away from yourself. Now I want you to think about that one for a minute. What exactly does that mean? What did they want John to do? 
Are you facing away from yourself if you are looking straight ahead? Or do you have to contort your head some strange way that would be impossible with the spacesuit? Or does it require some strange twisting action to somehow face away from yourself? <laughs> I'm not sure John understood that one either because he kind of mocked it. Charlie led me to believe that he was the one who knocked off the fender of the rover in his book, but it was John. I confirmed it with the transcripts. Can you imagine the mess it must have been driving that rover after the fender was gone? I can imagine it being kind of like driving a dune buggy without fenders in the sand or riding a dirt bike with no rear fender. But of course on the moon, it was much worse with that fine dust. And finally, for those still interested in the farm project, I know you are because people write and talk to me about it. <laughs> we continue to clean up the place. We found some snakes, but they were pretty nice. And, and I'm working on a new well house since the current one consists of two garbage cans. We have a uh, tin storage building that looks like a giant garbage can, <laughs> a square one, that we are going to try to move out of the front yard. Somehow having a giant garbage can in your front yard does uh, make it look a little rough. It's about 10 foot tall, so we're going to try to tip it across my utility trailer and pull it to its new location hidden in the woods. Wish us luck because this one's pretty iffy. <laughs> we just got the property inspected for a septic system. It turns out some of the soil is just not friable enough. I talked with the inspector about friability quite a bit as she was out there in the hole inspecting the dirt. She actually, they dug four holes about four foot deep and, and she got down in the holes and checked it out quite thoroughly. What it boils down to is we have to put in a septic system with a pump, which will wind up costing 50 to 100% more to install our septic system. Still no work has been done on the house. Actually, they haven't even finalized the drawings yet. So, we are here in the camper for a long time. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had four contributions. I would like to thank John G. from Wisconsin who donated at the Apollo level. Colin S. from Pennsylvania, who donated at the Mercury level and earned a Galaxy emoji. Andrew S. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level and earned a Shooting Star emoji. 
Mark N. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total Patreons are at 255 with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 344. And our goal is 500 by the end of the year. Unfortunately, funding dropped off significantly in May, our lowest month so far this year. I'm not sure whether it was delayed tax filing or the final phase of COVID, but it wasn't pretty. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make monthly payments. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. I want to add just a little to the personal project. We've, you know, we've gotten some important attachments working on the tractor, and that's huge. Our daughter is working that thing every chance she gets to get the roughly graded area smoothed out. And, uh, you know, I think everybody wants a turn on it and seems like we're putting on and taking off those rear attachments a lot because there's a lot to be done. (laughs) On the construction side, I was really hoping to announce that we had broken ground on one of the houses, but that hasn't happened yet. The permit's slowing us down, but, you know, hopefully, hopefully I'll have some news and some progress in June to report. Let's hope so. Now back to SRH. Remember, the winner for this episode will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the SRH Archive Magnet, or a NASA Meatball Sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected David Rogelstad. David Rogelstad, if you'd email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. If I didn't, my apologies. Sincere thanks to all 344 of you who contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, the Apollo 16 Mission Report, the Apollo 16 Timeline, the Apollo 16 Lunar Surface Journal, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 366 posted by June 10th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.